Good morning. Before we get started this morning, I just want to thank all of you who came and cleaned our house and helped us move into our house and have just prayed for our house and everything in between. Um, we have felt loved and welcomed here, and so we're so thankful for you and for uh, your well wishes and everything that you've done. Uh, so thank you so much for, uh, from our family uh, to this family. We're so thankful for, for all of you. Uh, also, before we get started today, 11 years ago, I was dating this really cute girl, and uh, we had to have a kind of a specific conversation uh, that uh, was, hey, so this whole thing about ministry kind of goes like this, um, God could call us somewhere, and we would need to go, and 11 years ago, uh, on the phone, uh, that girl said, you know, if God calls us, we'll go. And for 11 years, we didn't have to go very far, and so it seemed like it was going to be okay. Uh, And then Ohio called, and uh, she remembered that promise she made to me and to God. And so, Lindsay, thank you for that. And today is Lindsay's birthday. So if you see her today, make sure you tell her happy birthday. She looks great for 17. Um, (laughs) um, We're so thankful to be here. Let's let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for your word. Thank you that it uh, is as applicable today as it was when it was written, uh, that it speaks to us and our current situations. And so, uh, Father, we know that uh, you, you work uh, through your word, and so there may be ten different uh, things taken from this message from ten different people, uh, but if it's from you, that's okay. And so, Father, I just pray that you would give me your words, nothing more and nothing less, and it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So I asked a lot of ministers, where do you start? I called a lot of them that I knew, and I said, okay, I've got a lot of stuff I think I want to talk about. What, what do you start with? What do you do on the very first day on the job? And almost without exception, they all said, preach something that you know and preach something that you love. And so today we're going to start a series on the book of James because it's my favorite book of the Bible, and because I know it, and because I love it, and because without their advice, I wouldn't have been where I was, so I'm just going to keep following what they told me to do. So um, we're going to start a series on the book of James, and we're calling it Wise Guys and Wise Gals. And, And here's the funny thing. Aren't those two completely different phrases? If you call someone a wise guy, you're not giving them a compliment, are you? You're basically telling them they're quick-witted, uh, they're a smart aleck. Uh, you're maybe just telling them that they make too much trouble for their own good. You say, you're a wise guy. You don't really take that as a compliment. But if you call someone a wise gal, right, it's like they're sitting in a rocking chair, knitting clothing for children in Honduras, imparting their great wisdom to future generations, right? There's kind of a double standard there. We don't want to be a wise guy or the connotations that follow that. Here's the truth is, is wisdom's kind of hard to find. In fact, I would dare say that you've called someone a wise guy more than you've told someone that they're wise over the course of your life. And here's the truth, is that we live in a world that's so full of technology, that's so full of information, that's so full of this potential for connectivity, and yet what's what's lacking is wisdom. We can't find it. And maybe it's because we don't know where to look, or maybe it's because maybe we've just lost the source of it. 
James is kind of the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's the wisdom literature of the New Testament. And so as we look at the book of the James, we're going to ask the question, how do we live wise lives? And I need to give you a little caveat before we begin today. Those of you who are here when I did my trial sermon know that I did one verse from one of the Psalms. Today we're going to give a background to the book of James, and we are going to use one verse from the book of James. I want you to know two things. Number one is I can read. The second thing that I want you to know is that you don't have to worry about your preacher preaching 30 minutes every single Sunday on one verse. It will get bigger starting next week. But the first, book, first verse of the book of James gives us an idea on the background of who's writing it, who he's writing it to, and how it applies to us today. And so James 1, chapter 1, that's where we're at today. James, sorry, verse 1. This is James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Not earth-shattering. No, I mean, he didn't come out throwing a big punch. In fact, if you read through the New Testament and you go through all the letters, all of them kind of start the same way. This is who I am. This is who I'm writing to. Hey, what's up? That's kind of how it goes. So this isn't unique. In fact, calling himself a servant of the Lord isn't really unique because Paul does it too. And so there's not really that much there if you're just skimming over it. But here's the thing. James has something in his back pocket that Paul didn't have. Or Peter, or John, or any of the letters that we read in the New Testament. James has something in his back pocket that they don't have. A way that he could have introduced himself that brought a great sense of clout to the conversation. Because church tradition holds that James could have very well introduced himself, James, the brother of Jesus. That carries some weight, right? That carries some weight. Look, Matthew 13, 55. People are talking about Jesus. They're kind of astounded at this guy doing this stuff. And he says, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? James, the brother of Jesus, is writing this. And can you imagine the stories that he has? I mean, here we are, so many years later, and what do we have of Jesus' life? We had that he was born. We had that they ran away to Egypt. We have that Mary and Joseph won parent of the year for leaving the Son of God back when they went to travel on. And then we have Jesus at 30. And that's it. We've got these bits and pieces, and there's this huge gap here that James could fill us in on. And so can you imagine the stories that he could tell? I mean, it's a great sense of of wonderment. People have actually written false accounts of what Jesus was like as a child because it's such a a subject of fascination. What what did he do in this gap? Between being left in the temple and then showing up, what happened here? James could tell us that. But there's a reason that James doesn't come out and say this. There's a reason that James doesn't identify himself as the brother of Jesus. And I think it's because that as long as that was his only title, then he didn't believe in Jesus. 
experiencing everything that he experienced, seeing everything that he saw, he did not believe that his big brother was who his big brother was. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Look in John 7. It says, But when the Jewish festival of the tabernacles were near, or was near, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. Now, we may look at this out of context and say, Oh, that's really nice. They're asking him to go and show some more signs. No, they were telling him, Jesus, get out of here. Get out of here. You're giving our family a bad name. Please go somewhere else. It says, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world, a.k.a. not here. Right? The world really needs to see what you can do, Jesus, but not here. Verse 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. And it just blows your mind, doesn't it? To see everything that they saw, to see everything that James saw, and to still say... Get out of here. You are not, you're not this, Jesus. And so you have to ask the question, why? Why does James not believe that Jesus was who he said he was? Maybe it was jealousy. I mean, let's be honest. There are some of you who are younger siblings in this room. And you lived in the shadow of your older sibling your entire life. Right? Someone just punched someone because they did. You lived in the shadow, and you probably, in a moment of haste, said to your parents, I'm sorry that I'm not perfect like so-and-so. Here's the thing. When James said it, it was real. Right? I'm sorry I'm not perfect like Jesus. Like, he was perfect. Can you imagine how many times in a day Mary and Joseph said, James, why can't you just be like Jesus? It's got to be frustrating. It's got to be frustrating that he never disobeyed anyone. It's got to be frustrating that he always did the right thing. Can you imagine the first time that James went to a wedding without Jesus there and the wine ran out? And they came up to James and were like, so we were just thinking. Um, I mean, is it running in the family? Or, and he has to say no, and then they say, well, okay, why can't you be more like Jesus? And they walk off. Can you imagine living in that shadow your entire life? Maybe it was that. Maybe it was this. We read through the book of James, and we get the impression James knows his stuff. He knows it really well. He knows what he's talking about. So maybe it was a case that James was so smart, he was too smart for his own good. And he knew exactly what to look for, but because it was in such close proximity to him, he really couldn't see that the things that he knew were actually being fulfilled. But for whatever reason, James lived his life around Jesus, and he did not believe in him. And as we begin this discussion of wisdom, and as we begin this discussion of a Christian life, here's the truth that we have to understand. is that you and I can be around Jesus and not know him. You and I can spend our entire lives around Jesus and yet not know who he really is. Maybe it's because that we've just been riding the coattails of our parents' faith for our entire life. 
We kind of have a heritage faith where mom and dad came to church, grandma founded the church, and so we're here every single Sunday, and this is just who we are. It's never been real to you. It's never been, this is my faith. This is, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I, get, I got baptized. I gave my life when I was really little, but it's really my parents' faith. I've never owned it for myself. Or maybe we're at this mistaken thought that when we get to heaven, God's going to open the Lamb's book of life, and it's actually an attendance sheet. And he's going to be like, yes, you made it to when the doors were opened at the church more than 85% of the time. Congratulations, you're in. And so we just come every time that the doors are open, but we don't pay attention one bit. We're focused on what we're doing after service. We're focused on all the problems of the world. We're focused on what everybody's wearing and what everything is going on. And, and we're not focused on why we really need to be here. So maybe, maybe that's it. Or maybe we just made a decision a really long time ago and we haven't lived it a day since. Maybe this is where we are good and this is where we behave and this is where we say we're a Christian. But if we asked your coworkers or if we asked your wife or if we asked someone else they would say they really go to church here's the truth is that it is possible for us to just be around Jesus and to not know who he is and there's dangers in that the first danger is if you're just being around Jesus you're really close to making one step and falling away on May 16th of this year a man fell from Wrigley Field he was in the very back, and he fell over the fence, and unfortunately he died. And in an article about this, it noted that since 1969, there have been 25 people who have fallen from baseball stadiums and have died. Now, you can't fall from a baseball stadium if you're close to the action, can you? You fall from the baseball stadium when you are back against the wall. And the truth is that uh, the majority of these cases, these people were uh, either a little or a lot uh, of inebriated. And, and I'm not making light of that because I think it's a perfect example of what happens to us. You see, when we just choose to be around Jesus and live on the perimeter, when we just decide that we're going to be as far away as possible but still be in the club, then his voice isn't as loud as it should be. And when something happens in our life, we're going to turn to what's closest to us. And maybe that's addiction, or maybe that's an affair, or maybe that's just turning to yourself and trying to believe that you're really the savior of your own life by how hard you work and how much money you make. And soon before we know it, we're going to look around and we're not even around Jesus anymore. We're on the outside looking in. But because we depended on those things instead of the real thing, they've got us so trapped that we can't find our way back. Maybe that's what it is for you. You've been around Jesus your whole life, but you found yourself away because you took that bad decision, you made that bad step, and just playing religion didn't help you when you needed it the most. The second danger of being around Jesus is that you're more likely to follow the crowd than you are to follow Jesus. If Jesus is up there and he's preaching, imagine you're in a concert hall or something of that nature, then there's a good chance that you're going to follow the people who are closer to you than the voice that is really far away. There's an example of this. If you go to a baseball game or a soccer match, these are the, the two likeliest things. There's going to be one section of that stadium mostly full of school children, and they get bored with what's happening. And so what do they do? 
One of them stands in front of the section and tries them to do this, right? And no one pays attention. But then, because they're school children, they persist. And so they go, this, and then three more people, and then four more people. And soon the entire section is distracted because this annoying school child wants to start the wave, right? Or it's a college kid. Let's be honest, it's college kids too. But we're going to start the wave. Why? Because whatever's happening there is not interesting enough. And so we're going to start the wave. But the wave is not good if it is just one section. No, no, no. We have to go over and now annoy the next section over and try to get them to do the wave. And then 27 minutes later, the entire place is finally doing the wave. And they are so happy with themselves because whatever was happening was not interesting enough. And now they have caused something to happen. This is what happens when we're around Jesus. Someone decides whatever's happening down there is not interesting enough. Someone decides whatever is going on is not important, so let's do something else. And this is where someone says, you know, I think Jesus is saying this. Don't you guys believe that Jesus is saying this? And instead of listening to what he's actually saying, we're listening to one person's interpretation of it. So we either become entirely too legalistic or we go on the other end of the spectrum. And we start believing that what they've said is actually what's most important and not what Jesus says. Or we just decide that we're going to judge our lives based upon the people who are around us. And so we start dressing up or we start acting like those who are around us to please those who are around us, who are also around Jesus, instead of asking God what it is he wants us to do. And here's the truth is we don't have to look outside Scripture for a perfect example of this, do we? On Sunday, they came in and they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And on Friday, they said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. It was the crowd. And here's the truth. is that If we're just settling for being around Jesus, if we're just settling for saying, I'm checking off my attendance, or hey, my parents were Christians, so I'm a Christian, or, or whatever excuse it is, if we just decide to be around Jesus, you'll never know him. You'll never know him. But something changed. Something changed from James. James went from being a skeptic to a servant. What was it? Well, Paul actually writes about this, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and the sisters at the same time, most of whom who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then look at this. He makes a special point to say this. Then he appeared to who? James. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Born. Paul makes a very specific, very specific uh, record. Jesus went and sought out James. Now, if you're an older sibling, you'd like to think that the conversation went like, told you, like, told you. But I think Jesus is probably better than we are. Um, but I think that conversation kind of went like this. Like, I, I, know, I know you don't believe it. I know you didn't believe it. But I created you for something more. Now, 
go and do what you were made to do. I think that's how that conversation probably went. And from that day, James went from a skeptic to a servant. You see, the resurrection takes us from being around Jesus to knowing him. The single most important event in human history is when they showed up at the tomb and it was empty. No one else claims that. No one else claims that that someone died and three days later he came back. We believe Jesus is who he says he is because the tomb is empty. That's what we believe. And that resurrection power that shows up, it changes James' life. Just look at some of these things from the New Testament. Saul recounts his conversion experience. I guess who he says he goes and sees. He says, I went and saw James. When there's this Jerusalem council, one of the chairmen is James. When Paul's listing all these elders and he's calling someone a pillar of the church, who is it? It's James. And in around 62 AD, Christian tradition says that James was killed for his faith. Something changed. And it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's the truth. So many of us are still acting like he's on that cross. Because when he's on that cross, he died for our sins, and and we're just coming, we're so thankful for that. Because when the resurrection happened, that's when Jesus said, all right, it's time to go. It's time to do this. The resurrection is what changes our lives. And as far as this series goes, here's the truth about wisdom, and this is why it's so hard to find. Wisdom only begins when we know Jesus and we follow him. That's why we can't find it anywhere. That's why we're looking in all these different places and we can't find it. We can't find it because there's not a lot of people going to Jesus for wisdom and knowledge. Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. How are we going to get wise unless we listen to the source? It would be as ridiculous as going to take a math test after listening to a lecture on the Cold War. It wouldn't make any sense. You have filled yourself with knowledge on something that's not going to matter on how you do algebra. This doesn't make sense. We are going to news outlets, and we're going to newspapers, and we are going to Facebook. And we are depending on those things to give us wisdom and knowledge. And that's why when we ask for wisdom, we can't find it. Because it's only Jesus who has it. Proverbs 4 says, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. It's pretty simple. You want to start? Hey, go get it. Though it costs you all you have, Get understanding. You see, this is where we stop because we don't want it to be hard. Cherish her and she will exalt you. Embrace her and she will honor you. Uh, We would rather be applauded by our peers than to hold on to something like this. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. We don't see a lot of wise people because the truth is that we don't see a lot of people who know Jesus. We see a lot of people who are just around him. See, we can't really expect to grasp what's going on in this world without the lens of the resurrection. We can't. 
whether it's the stuff that happened in Virginia, whether it's whether we're just absolutely petrified about the thought of, of war, what, whatever it is, we can't make sense of anything in this world unless that tomb's empty. Because if that tomb's empty, it changes everything. You see, when that tomb's empty, it means that this is true. And because this is true, we can look at the way the world has been, the way the world is, and the way that the world will be, and we have a better perspective in which to view ourselves and we view our community and to view our world. Things can make a little bit more sense in light of Jesus than it does in light of just what's happening. And here's the truth, is that some of you need that change this morning. Some of you need the change from being around Jesus to knowing Him. Some of you have played Christianity for so long that you think that this is the way it was supposed to be. Jesus wants to show you that there's something more. You've made a decision to just sit and watch on the sidelines. Jesus wants you in the game. Jesus didn't die. He didn't save you to sit and watch. You were invited to come, to see, and to follow. And so this morning, that is an invitation for you. That if you've just been around Jesus, maybe you've never given your life to Christ, but you've heard about this whole Jesus thing, Maybe it's real for you. Maybe this morning we invite you to come forward and we'd like to talk to you about it. Maybe your faith has been your parents' faith or your faith has been this bygone era of your life and you really would like to get it back. I would love to talk to you. Our elders are here and they would love to talk to you as well. And so here in a moment we're going to have a time of decision as we do every week and it's not just a mere formality. You see, we believe the Bible when it says that the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is alive and well in us. And so we want to make sure every week we give an opportunity to invite you into that, that relationship. But there's one more part of this verse that we need to talk about. It will give us an idea of what James is trying to do. James says that he is writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. That means James is writing to people just like him. James is writing to a Jewish Christian audience who grew up as Jews. They have converted to Christianity, and they have made the mistake of believing just being in the club is good enough. And they've turned legalistic. They've turned into just thinking that it's, they've checked their, the checklist and they're good to go. And they've missed the power of the resurrection because they're just focused on themselves. And it sounds an awful lot like the world that we live in. You see, we live in a world around Jesus, and so maybe here in a second you're not going to come forward, and that's fine. But here's the truth, is that we live in a world around Jesus. Even your atheist or agnostic co-worker have to drive past like seven churches to get to where they're going. They're around Jesus. Some people in this church are around Jesus. And it is up to us to learn how to live wise lives in order to move them from the outskirts to the inner circle. To take them from where they think they need to be to where God designed them to be. 
And so maybe your decision today isn't to give your life to Christ, and maybe it's not to kind of re-up and, and say, you know what, I'm tired of being on the outskirts, I'm ready to be in the real thing. The, the decision we all can make today is, I'm going to go to this world that's around Jesus, and I'm going to do my best to do things the right way, to live a wise life. And then when they ask questions, not just give them what they want to hear, but give them truth and wisdom. Today, the take-home challenge for all of us is this. Don't just be around Jesus. Choose to be a servant. Because that's where wisdom begins. And if you don't go to the source, I'm going to tell you the next six weeks aren't going to make any sense. Because it's not how the world sees things. So this morning, as, as after I pray, if uh, you have a decision to make, we, we invite you to come forward. Uh, if, if our worship team can come up and... Uh, Go ahead and get ready to lead our song of invitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you know more than us. That you're not just this creature of of our making. You designed us. You, You had the world work the way that you wanted to work. And sin has come in and it's messed that up. But you still know how to live how we are to live our best life. You still know the plans that you have for us, and you know the plans that you have for this world. Father, we see in the back of this book, we see that you're going to make all things new, and everything's going to be like it's supposed to, but we're living in a time that it's not. And we need your wisdom, and we need your power to help us remember that, to look to that for hope and inspiration. And so, Father, I pray today as we sit here that we would be done with just playing church and playing religion and just thinking that it's something to check off a list or something that our parents did. Father, you designed us so that you could intimately know who we are, so that we can know who you are, and so that we could see our purpose in this life. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of everything out there. Father, may this church be a church where wisdom is found because this is a church that goes to the source. We thank you for sending Jesus, and we thank you that he is not in that tomb. That the cross was not the end of the story, but the beginning. And that the same power that raised him from the dead is alive and well in us. Father, we ask all of these things in your precious name. Amen. If you have a decision to make, we invite you to come forward today. Let's let's stand and let's see. There is coming a day when no heartache shall come, no more clouds in the sky, no more tears to dim the eye, all is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day, glorious day that will be. What a day that will be When my Jesus I shall see And I look upon his face The one who saved me by his grace When he takes me by the hand And leads me through the promised land What a day, glorious day that will be
There'll be no sorrow there, no more burdens to bear, no more sickness, no pain, no more parting over there, and forever I will be with the one who died for me. What a day, glorious day that will be. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. And I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand, and leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. What a day, glorious day that will be. Remember, there is no evening service tonight. Um, and check your bulletin for anything else that might be going on. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for all that you do. Uh, we thank you for this opportunity to be here and hear this message brought by Jared this morning. Lord, we pray that you'll be with us as we leave this place, that we'll be the light that you have called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Just the chorus. Just the chorus. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. By and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. Have a great week.